0: Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for February 10th, 2021, and happy National Umbrella Day to everyone. I am your dry co host, Mr. Tom Hollingsworth, and joining me as always is the man who is never unprepared, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, thanks for joining us this week.
1: I'm glad I prepared for a long time for this, and I uh always always am ready for the rundown but are you always ready for the rundown uh no just two always is not one okay
0: well, we've got a great lineup of news stories this week, um, some interesting things going on. We're going to jump right into the stories that uh, popped out to us, starting with uh, Intel. Uh, we've been talking about Intel a lot over the, uh, the last few weeks, but this story is not about the leadership at the top. Instead, it's about some uh, issues that they're having with a former employee. Uh, they have alleged in court this week that uh, before Dr. Varun Gupta left the company back in January of 2020... He plugged in a removable USB stick and copied about 3,900 files to it. He also copied files to a portable hard drive that he brought with him, and some of those files had big names like Top Secret or Intel Confidential. Um, Investigators working with Intel and Microsoft, which is the destination that Dr. Gupta went to after Intel, were able to determine that not only did he take the files, but he accessed those files during the course of his employment from his company-issued Surface. Intel is seeking damages in the amount of $75,000 plus a um, small legal fee, and uh, they don't want him looking at those files anymore because they're not his. Uh, Dr. Gupta, of course, denies that all allegations that Intel have put up are false. Now, Stephen, what are your thoughts about this? Because I find it kind of interesting that, you know, we've talked a lot about trade secrets and, and this kind of stuff, but it's kind of an open secret in the community that if you're gonna leave, you just kind of, you know, tweak a few things and maybe you might even get pardoned for it.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, that last bit was out of line, Tom. Uh, but everything else that you said is kind of, I, I, I gotta say, um, I am have a little bit sympathetic to Dr. Gupta uh, just on the face of it. Now, I don't know anything more than what was reported in the press about this thing, um, but uh, raise your hand if you haven't used a thumb drive or a portable hard drive to transfer files around. I mean, I think that this is uh, symbolic of kind of how people do things these days. I mean, you know, the dude uh, copied a bunch of stuff to a thumb drive. Um, you know, he, he denies the claims, um, and I can understand that he's denying it. The flip side, of course, is, as you said, the timing. It looks really, really bad, essentially, that, um, you know, for a few months right before leaving, that he went and quickly slurped up a whole bunch of documents that, um, you know, maybe he shouldn't have had access to. But let me just point out, the timing is February through July 2020, which is when he left. Um, Again, what were we doing between February and July 2020? Let me think. Um, Oh yeah, working from home. Um, Again, maybe the guy was just trying to get some work done through the pandemic. Um, Anyway, I I don't know what the answer is here, but I will say this, Uh, if you're a company you need to be careful about employees uh, slurping data and you need to be very careful uh, about them using confidential information. Um, And if you're a company hiring somebody, you need to not let them use confidential information from a previous employer. And if you're an employee or a regular person like you or me, um, be careful because honestly, it can look pretty suspicious if you download the entire Dropbox or
0: SharePoint right before you quit. And one thing I'll add to that, Stephen, that came from the news story that I was reading on this. Uh, If you're one of those people who likes to carry around USB sticks to um, collect things like that, do realize that those all have serial numbers and any serious company is going to be able to tie that device that downloaded those files to the device that's in your pocket right now. So if you're going to do it for good reasons... Please feel free to do so, but make sure that you have permission. If you're doing it for nefarious reasons, know that they will find out. Yep,
1: absolutely, especially Microsoft. I mean, obviously, they have instrumentation for this stuff, and they could find exactly how many times he plugged that thing in. So, Tom, another story, uh, quick story here. Um, Sentinel One, which is a top cybersecurity platform, announced yesterday that they're acquiring Scalar, a cloud data analytics uh, company. Uh, the deal is worth about $150 million and would see high-speed logging from Scalar integrated into Sentinel-1. This helps uh, data analysis for threats and so on, maybe even like threats that we were just talking about. Um, Will this deal help Sentinel-1 jump into the XDR space as they're proposing? Or is this
0: more uh, engine uh, about the future of analytics? So I thought this was an interesting story because if you look at Sentinel-1's website, this is all about them jumping into the XDR platform, which is um, extensible data Response. I forget. It basically, an analyst firm coined this term to become the all encompassing whatever for security. And no one really knows what it means right now. But I promise you, even though they don't know what it means, they're going to tell you that they're going to sell it to you. Um, but reality is, I don't know that this is going to get them there because when you break down what Scalar does, they are essentially a high speed log streaming service, which is great because there's a lot of companies out there that are trying to get into that market Uh, logic monitor is one that i looked at recently that did that in fact if you head over to geshaltit.com, you can see my thoughts on logic monitors logging service but logs in and of themselves are pretty much useless until unless you can feed them into a system that can use some machine learning and ai to kind of surface threats that you're really interested in and that's kind of what sentinel one does really well so essentially what they did is they bought a company that can feed them more So that they can start doing a better job of all of this threat analysis and stuff like that, which honestly is good for the company. I mean, they they closed a series A back in 2017. That was about $20 million. There's about 45 employees. They're all going to become Sentinel One employees by the end of the quarter. So I'm happy for them. I just don't think that this is the last little nudge that's going to get them into the full-fledged XDR utopia of everybody else that's trying to sell a solution like that. Um, I'm waiting to see what else they're going to do to augment that because, quite honestly, all the other companies that I'm talking to that are doing XDR-related things, they have software platforms, they have hardware controls, they have a bunch of other stuff in their toolkit. They're not just... uh, essentially a seam on steroids. I think that it is, um, you know, I don't
1: want to talk about technology so much as just the messaging um, that basically um, companies acquiring other companies and using other companies as basically outsourced R&D is obviously continuing, uh, acquisitions are continuing. Uh, You know, valuations look pretty good. So uh, from a macro perspective, you know, you're looking at the market, the IT market, especially the security market. um, And this honestly looks like a pretty good uh, pattern for the security market. Yeah, I would
0: agree. All right, Steven, I found a storage story for you, but we're gonna have to get technical for a minute. British prosecutors made a ruling this week that data, which is kept in the RAM, random access memory of a server, counts as storage for legal purposes. Now, why would we need to do this? Well, the center of this specific case is a company called IncroChat. It's an encrypted messaging service. The laws in the UK are different than those here in the US and we're fairly well-versed in the US and we have a big US audience, but I thought this was interesting because of the implications overseas. Um, There's a number of pending UK legal cases that are hinging on the definition of whether or not data stored in RAM is stored or in transit and um, there's a gag order on the case so they can't really talk about all the other cases but this one was able to get out and essentially what's happened is police raided this company and found out that a lot of their customers were doing things they really shouldn't have and they seized the servers and were able to pull unencrypted chat messages from ram but then the defense attorneys jumped in and said okay were those messages in transit between endpoints that were just being held in a server's RAM or were they actually being stored in the server's RAM where they could be accessed like a you know a, a search type thing? We are still waiting the outcome of what this is going to mean, but at least for now the British, the courts ruled that this, the messages were being stored, they were not in flight. What does this mean? Because once we've made a legal ruling about this, we kind of effectively now have a precedent that says that if you try to argue that they're in transit, I can point back and say, no, they weren't. And I know that you're kind of the storage guru here, Steven. So what's your take on this? Is this going to kind of open up maybe a Pandora's RAM of problems?
1: Yeah, I think maybe um, my take on this might not be um, what you might expect from Mr. Storage. So here's the thing. in between being Mr. Storage and Mr. Tech Field Day, I was mister EDiscovery. So I actually spent a couple of years working with a uh, corporate counsel um, to help them understand the implications of storage from a legal perspective, which gave me a little bit of insight into the legal profession and the process of law. And I am gonna say something that I think many people would be surprised to hear anybody say, which is that courts and lawyers are actually pretty smart. And the reason they're pretty smart is because unlike uh, the legislative process, and certainly unlike the executive process, uh, the legal process is exceptionally sensitive to nuance. And although the law is often wrong, in fact, the laws in this case are laughable and weird and far-reaching, the legal... Community is perfectly capable of interpreting them in reasonable ways. And so, essentially, what's being argued here is, or, or questioned here, is can we use evidence that we recorded from the RAM of a server without infringing on a law that restricts people from intercepting telecommunications? And the court is actually right in saying that RAM is not telecommunications. You know, the law was not intended to keep the police from uh, you know, reading the RAM of a server for which they have a legitimate reason to suspect and, and search, it, uh, the law was intended to restrict the police from just broadly intercepting telecommunications. Um, it, the, the case is actually, it seems to me, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems pretty clear cut. Um, I'd say that they were right. And furthermore, I would say that the courts are gonna be able now to use this case to uh, think in a smarter way about the nuances of RAM versus storage. Um, Clearly, uh, data stored in RAM is sometimes storage and sometimes not. Uh, You know, in-memory databases and things, um, I think absolutely should be the subject of warrants, uh, legally obtained warrants that give police access to stored data. Just because it's on a chip instead of a drive doesn't actually change the nature of what that thing is. It's still storage. Um, on the other hand, I could see a situation where a court might not look so fondly if a company was or if a warrant maybe exceeded its, uh, its aspect by maybe snooping on, um, you know, promiscuous network interfaces or something like that. They may say, wait, 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 that's clearly not storage and you overstepped your bounds. So I, I honestly think this is a great story. It's an interesting story and that the, ch- the courts made the right choice.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of with you here. Trying to argue the legal definition of whether RAM is, is a temporary transmission method or if it's an actual storage system is essentially trying to hang your hat on a very spurious argument. And, and I'm with you. If the data is in RAM, volatile or not, it is being stored. And a lot of other things, like you know, Hadoop is a good example. You know, those servers have gigs, if not terabytes, of RAM, and they effectively store the data in RAM for you know, high speed access, or then you get into the, you know, um, what is, what about a, like something like 3d cross point, which is effectively in a Ram slot, but it is persistent memory storage. You know, you're going to have to slice that, that pie pretty thin to make your argument. And like you said, we're trying to use ancient laws or even antique laws and apply them to new technology. And yes, lawyers and judges may not necessarily know how to operate their blackberry, but they're not dumb people because they all graduated from law school and passed the bar exam. So I think what you're going to see is that as more judges and more lawyers are more technically savvy and are able to discern the differences between these two things, case law is going to be updated rapidly to, you know, to take this into account, which of course could very well drive a lot of innovation around things like just say Intel's SGX platform, which allows for in-memory encryption, not necessarily to solve this particular problem, but I could see how this could be applied for people that want to avoid the issues that are going on. Absolutely. So
1: um, yeah, I think they got this right. So um, let's move on another um, (laughs) legal story. Uh, The DOJ, the US Department of Justice announced this week that it's dropping a lawsuit against a California law aimed at protecting net neutrality. Uh, The law was passed in 2018 as a direct response to the repeal of net neutrality by the FCC in 2017. Uh, The DOJ filed a lawsuit claiming that the FCC order superseded the state law, which sought to prevent providers from throttling service or introducing paid fast lanes to certain traffic types. The lawsuit isn't the only one prevailing, uh, preventing the law from going to, into effect, but uh, this is a sign that the current political climate supports a change to the FCC rules of the past four years. Uh, Tom, we've been talking about Ajit and the uh, FCC for as long as we've been doing the rundown. We've been talking about net neutrality and we've been talking about how the law affects this. Um, what do you think about this? So what is this signal about the future of the open internet?
0: So I'm just going to put out a disclaimer. I am a I'm a proponent of net neutrality. I believe that this idea of paid fast lanes is stupid. And that's a technical term. But I think where where we're getting into slicing some pretty pretty thin hairs here as well is does this law of a state is it can it effectively be superseded by a federal law? And that was kind of at the point of this because the FCC said that we are going to remove these protections and a state, a sovereign part of the US said, "You know what?" We, we like those and we're going to implement them, at least for people that do business in our state. And the FCC came in and said, no, you can't because commerce clause, blah, blah, blah. And then they tied this up in court. Well, as is usually the case in the US with a change of administration, some things get added to the docket, some things get taken away from the docket. And like we said, this isn't the only thing that's actually hanging this lawsuit up. As a matter of fact, at the end of the month, those, some of those remaining claimants are gonna have a meeting about it. But I think it's ultimately a signal from not only the president of the US, but also from the people that he will have appointed to the FCC, either as chairwoman, uh, Jessica Rosenworcel, or anyone who's gonna be up there, that effectively what's going on is, we're going to start undoing the decisions that lead to non-net neutrality.
1: Yeah, I I think that this is a positive sign overall Tom that uh, net neutrality is back in vogue and is, uh, you know, (laughs) net neutrality is in the house once again. So hopefully we will see this um, happening increasingly uh, from
0: now on. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, fingers crossed. All right, um, Steven, one more story here. Uh, VMware has released Cloud Foundation 4.2 which has data persistence for S3 compatible object storage thanks to two of their partners, Cloudian and Min.io. With S3 effectively becoming the de facto protocol for cloud object storage, these companies add a really powerful capability to the VMware cloud offerings. Is this a prelude to acquisition by VMware now that we've seen some changes at the helm? Or is this just gonna be another partnership that enables VMware to kind of play in some different markets?
1: I look at this a lot more as a partnership than an acquisition. Um, I know that everybody is always excited when VMware might buy a company. Um, and frankly, Cloudian and MinIO are great companies uh, with great products, and they're doing great stuff. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if VMware did acquire them, but I, thats I don't think that's what this is. I think what this is, is VMware admitting that they need an S3 compatible um, object store for containers. And um, they need one that works natively. And I also think that this is VMware doing it right. In other words, they're not just uh, grabbing the open source repo for MinIO and uh, compiling it into their software. Instead, they're partnering with the company. They're working closely with the company. Um, I should point out that we recently talked to MinIO at Field Day. And if you wanna learn more about that solution, um, just go to techfieldday.com. Uh, You'll see the video probably right there on the front page. Otherwise, you can just click on the MinIO name and you can learn a lot more about how this product works. But essentially, MinIO makes one of the best scalable uh, S3-compatible object stores in the business. And their software powers basically everybody, uh, or almost everybody, who's using uh, or who's touting an on-premises S3-compatible object store. I, again, will not throw stones on this podcast, but I will say that I know for a fact that a VMware competitor that makes a scalable cloud solution that offers S3 compatible storage is not playing nice with MinIO, and in fact did just grab the open source uh, code and compile it into their product and claim it as their own. And when they were called on it, they had a partner grab the open source software and compile it and claim it as their own. In other words, um, not everyone's doing this as coolly as VMware is. VMware deserves kudos for finding some of the best products in the space and integrating them with the right partner mentality.
0: And I say, good day, sir. Yeah, I, I appreciate large companies that effectively could have just bought their way into this partnering with the expertise, and going through the motions of showing that they want to do it the right way as opposed to, I don't know, we'll call it the the river approach of just uh, forking the project and then taking all of the bits and selling it out from underneath the company that was doing it. I, I don't know who would do that. But you know, we'll, we'll just give it a name. All right. um, So those are some of the top stories, but we had a couple that we wanted to take a closer look at. And uh, the first one is, of course, Starlink, because who doesn't want to talk about awesome networking that happens to be in outer space? Now, the next round of pre-orders for Starlink just opened up. All you need to do is put down a $99 deposit and then wait for the service to be available in your area. Now that's not all you're gonna need, however, because we've talked about previously on the rundown, you're gonna have to fork over about $499 to get the hardware for the uplink downlink stuff. And then the service itself is gonna cost you about $99 a month. However, you're still gonna get about 30 to 60 megabits downstream. The latency is a little bit variable, but hey, you are beaming your internet to a satellite in space. Um, If you live in a rural area, and I've had several of my friends who do live in rural areas of of Texas and other places texting me, asking me, should I get Starlink? And my answer is, if it's available, yeah, you absolutely should, because it's better than trying to get the cable company to run a line out there. Um, The latest rounds of services, though, they're going to be rolling out kind of in phases because Starlink has like a customer target for their devices. And until they can get more in orbit, they have a certain cap that they have to be on. Um, However, uh, I did see a story from last week, they did add more capacity in the polar regions. And the reason why that's important is because they're actually using lasers to transmit the data between satellites as opposed to doing like the upstream downstream cloth thing. Yeah, lasers. And uh, that's actually gonna add a lot of capacity because now in those sparsely populated tundra areas, they don't have to beam the, the data up and down, they can just kind of pass it over the fabric. And that's kind of what they were aiming for. So essentially they're saying we have enough satellites in orbit, we can make this happen now. Okay, now, Stephen, we've talked about Starlink in the past, and you kind of have your thoughts around it. Does this rollout change your mind about the way that Starlink is going to be used? Is this going to be something that Elon Musk is going to be leveraging heavily in the future to you know, kind of be a, a, a funding base for some of his other projects? Is this you know, still just kind of a federal funding cash grab? Or is this really just something that Elon Musk wants to spend Bitcoin on now?
1: A lot of questions in there, Mr. Tom, but I'll try to unpack it a little bit. Um, First, a disclaimer, uh, my internet access stinks. And I live near a major metro area about um, maybe a hundred meters or a hundred yards off of a main state road right near the center of town. And the best that cable modems and uh, DSL can do is 50 megabits down. And uh, my, my, my cable modem is actually delivering about 30 or 40 milliseconds of latency. In other words, it stinks. Um, this is astonishing because like I said, I mean, I'm not in some rural backwater like Oklahoma. I'm in Ohio for, for Pete's sake. And everybody who knows is that Ohio is where it's at. So. Um, Here's the thing. Um, Starlink is not like other internet services. And I think it's worth taking a moment here to step back. What makes Starlink so different from all other satellite-based internet services? Because, you know, I mean, a lot of these, uh, like the Hughes thing and stuff, honestly, they stink even more because of latency. The, the reason is actually due to uh, physics. Um, so it's important to know that Starlink is in much, much, much lower orbit than most of those geosynchronous um, internet access satellites. It's also a network, a mesh of much smaller satellites that act independently. Why is this important? Well, it turns out it's all based on the speed of light. In other words, um, you would think that satellites are way the freak over there, but it turns out that Starlink satellites are only over there instead of way the frack over there. Um, and, and, And having them just be over there dramatically reduces latency. In fact, it reduces latency to the point where it is actually competitive amazingly enough with some terrestrial systems like cable modems. Um, It's probably not, it's an order of magnitude and it'll never be competitive with fiber to the home or with DSL on a latency basis. But the thing is also, I mean it's a it's a, a mesh of satellites which means that they can actually team up and get quite a lot of bandwidth and throughput, which means that Starlink can be quite competitive indeed. I'm seeing reports of people who've deployed it seeing more like 150 megabits out of the system of, of download speed, which is uh, you know, just dramatically better than what's being promised. Um, and I'm not at all surprised. I mean, the system is a pretty good system. So uh, by making it widely available, um, I think that what they're doing here is essentially they're going to be providing broadband that actually is, amazingly enough, is competitive even in near metro areas like Northeast Ohio. Now, it's probably never going to be competitive, like I said, to gigabit fiber to the house in places that have that, but not all places do. In fact, most places here in the U.S. at least don't have that. So this is basically a long run up to me saying Starlink is the bee's knees. Essentially, Elon Musk has, um, I think, hit a home run here that could actually be a bigger home run than Tesla. And let me explain why. So uh, Starlink, like I said, is is technically a very good product. Um, It makes a lot of sense. The way it works looks scalable. Um, The frickin' lasers Tom mentioned earlier actually are also going to be important, not in polar regions. So uh, apparently most of the recent satellites have the lasers built in as well. And what it's going to allow them to do is build a mesh for uplink and downlink. In other words, um, if the because right now what happens is you're just bouncing it off off of whatever satellite you can see. Um, Once you have that laser mesh um, in between satellites, Essentially, you're going to be able to uh, use different downlink stations in order to um, mitigate, uh, you know, overcrowding on local downlink stations. And I should also point out, and this is cool from a nerd perspective, that. Lasers, free space lasers between the Starlink satellites actually have much better throughput and lower latency than fiber optic communications, because yes, laser in a vacuum is faster than laser in a fiber, and that's just nerd cool. So anyway, what we're gonna end up with is um, frankly, a really nice uh, broadband solution. I've been a little critical of Elon Musk first for being a total loon, but also for being, one of those people that uh, is constantly building businesses that take advantage of government subsidies and government funding. Well, he's got another one here because there is no, I mean, there's so much government money in rural broadband that he can absorb into Starlink. And and, and they're going to because essentially they're putting together a service that's going to work much, much better. It's going to have a much lower barrier to entry, much lower cost point, and actually, frankly, serve consumers a lot better than trying to run fiber to some farmhouse in Oklahoma. So, um, honestly, it's great. Now, the final question, is, he, is, this, is this in it for the long run? What are they gonna do with this? Um, for that, I'm gonna point out, uh, there's a great guy, Casey Hanmer, who writes blogs about space and you know, he, he's super smart guy. Um, And he wrote some great stuff, and I'm just gonna basically pretend that I thought of the things that he already thought of. Essentially, think of this, Starlink is the ATM that Elon Musk uses to fund space travel. So essentially, the Falcon 9 was federally funded. Um, It works awesome. (laughs) It saves the government like like $9 uh, of every 10. Um, And not only that, but they just launched, I don't know, was it 60 satellites in one launch the other day? Um, So essentially, they can put these satellites up extremely cheaply. Wait till the Jefferson Starship is able to launch 600 or 6,000 satellites at a go at a cost that's even less than Falcon 9. Um, Essentially, what we're going to do is we're going to have Starlink be SpaceX's cash cow they're gonna use it as the ATM. They're gonna pull tons of money from all sorts of people from the governments of the United States and many, many other countries who are gonna try to provide broadband because people need broadband. Um, They're gonna pull money from corporations who want communications for remote devices and remote locations and stuff like that. They're gonna effectively compete with a massive new industry, the connectivity industry, take a lot of money out of that, subsidize the activities of developing these, you know, basically space launch systems. And that is what's going to catapult SpaceX way ahead of the 500 other companies that are developing rockets right now. So what, you know, it's it's a stepstone approach. It's a smart stepstone approach. And I frankly think it's going to work.
0: Yeah, I would, I would completely agree with you there that that this, this is no longer about trying to find a way to make a commercially viable rocket launch platform. This is about trying to find a way to make your rocket launch platform a business. And they have done that. And they have found a way to make it kind of a recurring revenue stream. And kind of like you said, to me, this is bigger than Tesla because I don't have to sell you a satellite every time you want to join my service. I already have the satellites in place it's a sunk cost but every person that i add to those increases my profitability for you know maybe in five years just maintenance and yeah there's there's a lot of things that we can do with this once it's in place and and honestly it's true disruption because your local broadband provider whether it's the cable company or the telco or the electric company they kind of have these gentlemen's agreements about who runs what into which neighborhoods and are we all going to increase our speeds at the same time and google tried to disrupt that with google fiber and then they did what they normally do which is kill a project because why not but it they were still playing by the those rules i mean we saw news stories about how uh, telcos wouldn't give them right of way on telephone poles well, who needs to worry about right-of-way on a telephone pole when the right-of-way is in space? And so I think that that's going to drive innovation in the market because how do you compete against something you can't legislate out of existence? And that's Elon's ace in the hole because the government's paying him to put these rockets in space. And if he has leftover capacity on a heavy lifter, why not throw in a few more satellites to replace the broken ones or add you know, coverage to Easter Island or something like that? And ultimately, that's going to be his ability to say, here's what we're going to do with it. And quite honestly, the other thing that I'm super excited for is the fact that once this thing is in place, we will have a laser defense grid that will be able to protect us from the beta Reticulans whenever they finally decide to invade. Um, I don't know how effective it will be, but hopefully by that point, Elon will have figured that part out because he is an evil genius. And uh, I, for one, welcome our new SpaceX Tesla overlords.
1: I do want to point out, too, just on a downside, that there is a bit of a tragedy of the commons aspect to this, in that, um, essentially, uh, although Musk is not running telefo- wires on telephone poles and digging up the streets, um, he is doing something that kind of pollutes the world, and that is basically putting up these visible constellations of satellites in low Earth orbit. And um, already we're seeing people complain about the fact that they, uh, you know, that this is changing the night sky, and it absolutely is changing the night sky. You can see these things with the naked eye, um, and soon you will see these things with the naked eye, especially dawn and dusk when there's a, you know, sort of an oblique reflection from the sun, because, um, frankly, they're Super visible and there's gonna be a ton of them up there. And so pretty soon when you go in the evening, when you're, uh, you know, the the sun is going down, you're gonna look up at the sky and you're gonna see a regular network of dots in the sky. And that's the SpaceX satellite. And it not only that, but it's gonna be all these other companies that are competing with them. Cause that's the thing, there's a lot of other companies that are competing with them, Um, you know, and that's kind of sucky, but okay, whatever. Anyway. On that note, um, here's a warning. Uh, maybe if you live in Oldsmar, Florida, uh, you shouldn't drink the water, or maybe you should because actually they fixed it. But anyway, uh, this week, there was a report that a uh, hacker had infiltrated the water treatment facility in Oldsmar, Florida and attempted to change the levels of sodium hydroxide that were added to the water to purify it. Uh, the levels are normally about hundred parts per million and they were increased to 11,100 parts per million um in, right in front of the water treatment plant worker who was looking at the screen at that moment the worker quickly changed the levels back to normal and reported the breach uh, and investigations are ongoing but evidence is pointing that uh, this may not have been such a clever hack after all it looks like they used a popular remote access uh, program called TeamViewer installed on the machine so that they would be able to access it remotely themselves so Tom, are we looking at an entirely new vector of attack, or is this just bad
0: timing and a coincidental uh, access by someone else? So I looked at this story because it was it broke yesterday morning and it was enormous. Like everyone's like, oh, nation states are hacking us, and you know this has to be somebody who's super coordinated because who can get into a SCADA system and be able to do this? No, Hanlon's razor still applies, and for those of you who don't know, Hanlon's razor is never attribute to malice that which can adequately be explained by stupidity. Here's the thing by the description of what the person said about the mouse just being working on its own and doing these things. That means it's a remote access system, which is why most people believe it's TeamViewer. And uh, if you don't follow Jake Williams, Malware Jake on Twitter, he actually had a really good analysis of this a couple of hours after it came out. He goes, the kinds of language that we see in these reports that are very non-specific about certain things, but ultra specific about others, tends to lead to the fact that there was something on the system that shouldn't have been there in the first place, and they're trying to cover it up. And maybe not cover it up, but we're not, we don't want to admit that somebody in the office installed TeamViewer on this machine so they don't have to get up out of their desk can go walk over to do this. And here's the other reason why I think that this was not something super sophisticated. We mentioned that normally the amount of sodium hydroxide that you put into the water supply to neutralize toxins and other things is about 100 parts per million. And for those of you who don't know at home, sodium hydroxide is essentially Drano. But little amounts of it, like bleach, are good for for sterilization. How much did they increase the levels? Well, if this had been a sophisticated hacker, if I was going to do this, allegedly, I would have increased the amounts to just enough to make people sick, but not kill them, or just a little bit over the lethal amount, but still keep it low enough so that it looks normal. What did they do? They clicked in the field and they put the cursor at the front and they went one, one. And now instead of a hundred, it's 11,100. To me, that screams, um, amateur, That screams punk kid scanning Shodan and finding out here's a system that I've never seen before. I'm going to go ahead and connect to it and see what happens. Because quite honestly, folks, if I was going to do this as an attacker, I would have done it at three o'clock in the morning when nobody was going to be on the workstation anyway. And then I would have been able to do things as opposed to doing it at 930 in the morning when someone's sitting at the workstation drinking a cup of coffee going, huh, that's weird, the mouse is moving on its own. So we have this mentality now that the the minute something happens, we wanna attribute it to some kind of a nation state. We wanna say that this is the Russians or the North Koreans or the Iranians or whoever. I get that. And they're ultimately responsible for a lot of things in the world. But again, before you jump to the conclusions that this is an ultra sophisticated attack that's gonna bring down a hydroelectric power dam or, or all these other things, look at the facts of the case do the homework and then say, it looks more likely that this is actually what's happening given that it wasn't a coordinated attack, given that it didn't involve any kind of sophisticated hacking tools other than TeamViewer. And that ultimately the the damage was reversed relatively quickly just because someone happened to be sitting at that workstation. So no, this is not a nation state. This is not a, a coordinated hacking campaign to poison the water all across the U.S. This is an unfortunate set of coincidences that were thankfully thwarted in time to prevent death. I would further say though, that if um,
1: this concerns you that uh, somebody could have, uh, some kid, probably a kid sitting around like, hey, check this out, could have murdered uh, the population of Oldsmar, Florida. um, You should be concerned. (laughs) Because the fact that, that some unsophisticated person, and again, uh, looking, you know, uh, coincidentally, I don't know, it looks kind of like it was an unsophisticated attacker. The fact that an unsophisticated attacker was able to get in and do this suggests that sophisticated attackers could do the same thing. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if an idiot can do something, a smart person can too. And um, I'm pretty nervous about that. I'm pretty nervous indeed about what this says about the security of our systems overall and our interconnected lifestyle. And in fact, I'm thinking of taking my SpaceX satellite and uh, going
0: and living in Amish country unplugged from the grid. So I'll see you later, Tom. Well, you enjoy that. I'll be uh, stopping by pretty quickly for some uh, butter and furniture. Um, uh, I I look at it like the war games problem of, uh, you know, we have the super sophisticated computer that could cause a nuclear Armageddon. Why is a teenager able to dial into it? Um, But I think we're a long way removed from uh, playing games of tic-tac-toe. Thank you very much for joining us for the rundown this week. Uh, we really appreciate you tuning in each and every week. We are um, you know, always on at 1230 Eastern time on Wednesdays, bringing you the latest news of uh, all things in enterprise IT. You can always find us on our website at gestaltit.com. You can also find us on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video, the latest episode of the rundown will be up there, along with uh, some of our other great series, Check Some, Conversations, the on-premise IT roundtable, uh, unboxing videos of the cool stuff that we get to play with in tech sometimes. Um, Stephen, uh, what have you got going on this week that people should definitely be tuning in for?
1: Uh, well, I have to say in order to be compatible with the uh, tech news of 2021, I have to say Bitcoin, Dogecoin, GameStop, Wall Street Bets, uh, okay, there, I've said it. Um, no, I'm, uh, you can find me uh, weekly on Tuesdays uh, in the Utilizing AI podcast. Uh, just go to Utilizing AI, uh, search for that in your favorite DuckDuckGo or whatever search engine you like to use. And um, you know I honestly have been really enjoying that. Uh, you can also find me on the On-Premise IT Roundtable, as, as well as Tom here at gestaltit.com. Um, and uh, frankly, you can uh, find us on Clubhouse. If you want an invite to that, just find me on Twitter and send me a DM with your iPhone only. SMS number, and I'll send you an invite because I got a few extras. Um, And that's been a lot of fun too. So uh, please do join me and I look forward to seeing y'all at uh, future stuff. Uh, Also, I will give a shout out to techfieldday.com. Check the schedule there. We've got events uh, scheduled all the way out to August now. So we've got cloud field day. We've got storage field day, AI field day, networking field day, security field day, all sorts of field day events coming up uh, at techfieldday.com.
0: That's exactly right. And uh, we will be sure to uh, keep the Enterprise Tech News rolling uh, as long as we're capable of getting on a Zoom call and talking about all the fun things that are happening. But, you know, we can't do that without you, the audience. So please uh, feel free to leave a comment on our videos and let us know what you think. Uh, If you have some viewpoints about the news that are maybe not exactly what we said, we would like to hear those as well, because we always try to encourage community discussion. And uh, that's how we all get better and smarter. Uh, But for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for Stephen Foskett and the rest of the family here at Gestalt IT, we want to thank you very much for tuning in. We will all see you next week. And remember to make sure that you have a super sparkly day. Bitcoin!